Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have a new friend to the show, Dr. Candace Nicole Hargens. She is an award-winning associate professor of counseling psychology at the University of Kentucky, where she studies sexual wellness and liberation. She is the host of Fuck That System, a sexual liberation podcast, and How to Love a Human, a liberation podcast that asks people with multiple marginalized identities what the world would be like if it loved them. She has published over 50 research articles and has been featured in the Huffington Post, the APA Monitor, Good Housekeeping, Women's Health, Blavity, Cosmopolitan, and the New York Times. Also welcome back, Holly Harper, creator and co-exec producer of Hella Late with Holly Harper on Brick TV. Holly has been featured on New York One, Black Enterprise Magazine, Thrive Global, Confessional Magazine, and Black San Diego Magazine. Her popular sketch comedy show, American Candy, was named one of the five groups to watch by Time Out Chicago. Holly works with Gold Comedy and Stand-Up Girls, two programs that empower young women by teaching them stand-up comedy. She is also the creative consultant for the very successful Black Women in Comedy Laugh Fest. Also welcome back, Gina Brion. Gina's one-hour special, The Floor is Lava, won a 2021 Grazia Award, an Imogen Award nominee, and it is available on Amazon Prime. Along with her special, Pacifically Speaking, check it out. Her half-hour special easily offended streams on all HBO digital platforms. Whew, those are a lot of specials. I don't know if you counted. You probably saw her killing it as a finalist on America's Got Talent Season 16. And Gina made appearances on Chelsea Lately, The View, Late Night with Seth Meyers, and Jimmy Kimmel Live. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. It's because of you we make some pretty impressive lists and... We get these pretty incredible guests. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast, and Twitter is friendslikeusten. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation, just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you, we keep going. And now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us and be golden. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available. Just go to marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews. We have surprise guest friends from the podcast who stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want. It's not really gone. Get vaccinated. Booster up. And Black Lives Matter. And welcome to Friends Like Us. I'm Marina Franklin and I have some great guests. I'm here with 
Gina Brion returning to France. She's got a toddler and it's challenging. <laughs> and Holly Harper is also returning. I've seen her lift weights and she's a mom with strength. <laughs> <laughs> and Candace. Dr. Candace Nicole, don't forget she's a doctor. <laughs> and she's here to talk about birth and sex. Hey. Hey. Yeah. That's what got us Yo. into this position in the first place, ladies. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so welcome. This is a great group today. Welcome sure to is. April. April. Yes, Aries season. <laughs> And I, think I just celebrated my homegirl's Aries birthday. Yep. <laughs> it's spring. Yeah. This yes. year is flying by. And you all. Right. So fast. You know what's great about this group? You all are mothers. And I think it's a great week to have this conversation because I, I believe this is Black Mother Awareness Week, Maternal oh. Awareness Week. I know Gita is Latina, but, you know. Women of color, we're all in this struggle together. Yeah. So um, Dr. Candace is new to us. She has her own podcast on YouTube. It's called Fuck the System. Yes, I love it. I <laughs> love it. Right? Can you tell us about it? Yes, we talk about sexual liberation. So I had a recent episode about ethical non-monogamy with people of the global majority and just talking about how folks think is white people stuff. But actually, it's something that culturally we've been thinking about for a long time and doing for a long time. Had episodes about um, consent coming up and all the ways that consent can look, not just mm. this enthusiastic verbal yes, but all of the many ways we can consent. Amazing episodes about what is sexual liberation. I saw some of our topics yeah, for earlier. I, I and, yes. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. yeah, what is it? You know what? I, I think thought, it, I don't know if everyone gets to define it, but I make sure that I have as inclusive of a definition as possible. So it's your autonomous decision about how you engage sexually, but it must be consensual. So mm -hmm. it may be people who are asexual who are like, my sexual liberation is not engaging in sex because that is not something I desire. It could be people who are having sex with as many people as they want, as long as it's consensual and ethical. So for me, it's about your autonomy and it's about consent. I like oh, that. I love that because I've been feeling guilty about oh, not yes. having sex. Mm -mm. Sometimes you're in the mood. And that's important because people think that you always need to be. And we can talk about sexual desire and what that means. Yeah. Let's, let's get into that. Well, we'll get, get into we'll get sex. It. Well, you know what it is also is like I've had two episodes before where I've talked about how I haven't had sex in a while, and everyone's telling me that I have to in order to get the, um, uh, is it the collagen? I didn't know there was collagen in my vagina. Mm. They said if you don't, ha now vaginal atrophy can happen yeah. if you're not experiencing um, enough sexual lubrication, but you don't have to have sex with somebody else for that. So if you're having solo sex, you're good. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I, see. I had wanted to be a sex therapist for a part of my life. Like I was obsessed. I took human behavior classes. I took human sexuality classes. Um, I took all of the psychology classes that I could just fascinated with both the mind relationships and how sex changes things in relationships and how we don't talk about sex enough, how mm. people still have old school, like these outdated 
views on sex and sexuality, how if people just read history, actual history, not the stuff they let slip in schools, you know what I mean? Mm. But like actual history of how sex and sexual politics worked back in the day, they would have a better understanding of what sexual fluidity actually yeah. is. Yes. It's, so why are you not in my profession with me? What? What? Come on. <laughs> because she's a famous I got comedian. bit by the comedy bug. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, why be all professional when I can make fun of anyone instead? And that's um, a good point. I still, I used to do a little, like, just um, some more research on my own on the side. And I was, like, sometimes a guest uh, on... Uh, Angela, Angela Yee's show Lip Service. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a guest sometimes where we would discuss and I would give advice just based on some of the stuff. I was like, I'm not licensed. I'm just nosy and opinionated. So I like that. I love it. But I have I was- considered going back and, and getting like and going back to school for it because it does well, fascinate me. Hit me up if you want I to. might. Well, I think I'm older than everyone here. So my situation is a little bit different only because I'm going through menopause. So that also adds to like the lack of desire. I heard people's desire can go way up yeah. or way down. And Mine's like it feels down. like there's no like range for most people. Maybe it's maybe it's because I was such a hoe. Hey. That is so <laughs> you hilarious. You got yours in already. Yo. You did what you needed to do. <laughs> you tapped out of the hoe game. You're did like, you I'm done. Up, did you use up I'm your chips? Like you just you spent them. And you were like, well, guess there's no more. So I got Ixnay, none left. Ixnay on the dick. So, you know, you're satisfied now. You, yeah. You're like, you know, I've done all the things I wanted to do in life. Yeah. I'm good here. Yeah. I do feel like a lot of women that are um, becoming more spiritually aware, more aware of self are having a difficult time. Uh, feeling attracted to men. Like, I hate to say it that way, but I talk to a lot of my girlfriends and they're like, as I wake up to my own internalized misogyny, as I notice all all these things in the world in terms of patriarchy and what falls under it, it's very difficult for me to engage even in conversation with certain men that don't view the world in that way or can't see how the world is. That's a normal part of the process, though. Like, so when you're coming into your own sense of critical consciousness, especially around misogyny, even race, people who are coming into their own racial awareness, you have to go through that time period where you're angry. That's a normal like space. You don't want to stay there, but it's normal (laughs) to feel like, you know what? I don't want any of this. I just want to be with people who are like me and that's it. And then eventually, as you progress, you kind of return to all of the relationships with a refreshed awareness of, oh, okay, this is how I also have contributed. And so I can't hold this rage at you without holding myself yeah, accountable. Nice. But the anger is a normal part. So if you're in that spot, you're in that spot also, for a little while. I have to admit, I mean, we look at like the way misogyny and patriarchal values are like really trying to make a hardcore comeback. You know what I mean? Never really left, but trying to make a hardcore comeback. It's just hard to have really just dumb conversations with some of these men that have been caught up with it. You know what I mean? Like just certain buzzwords. Like if I hear it like female, I'm like, eh, like I could just, I hear it and oh. I'm like, oh, this is not, the glass is half full. I don't think men they realize don't. And the that. Thing is, the glass is half full in terms of like my life. And I feel like, I don't know if I even want to have these conversations. I want to have good conversations. I only have half left. I don't want to have these dumb conversations. 
It's mm-hmm. getting harder and harder to be surfacey, which is, I think, where a lot of us, because we were born and bred and programmed to be people pleasers, specifically women of color, don't ask questions, don't, you know, don't push things to the edge, don't be, um, don't be rude. And rude and everything that fell under rude was don't give your opinion, don't mm-hmm. get an attitude, don't, don't feel disagree. anything, don't be anything but pleasant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right? And I feel like because we are all programmed, specifically women, programmed to be people pleasers, you know, that's that's how we raise women. It's funny, now that I'm raising a little boy, I hear all these ignorant things that I that I hear moms say about the differences between raising girls and boys. Mm-hmm. And it infuriates me because I realize so much is put upon women to handle all the accountability that we don't teach little boys, that yeah. we don't teach men. It's all put on us. We yeah. don't teach little boys about consent. We teach little girls to cover up. We yes. don't teach little boys about respect. We teach little girls not to speak up. And so that has been so mind boggling to me because as we all mature and pull ourselves out of our programming and stop being people pleasers, we're going to piss off a lot of the men that used to be in our lives because we cannot have the same conversations. And Mm -hmm. to them, what happens is they go, you changed. What happened to you? Yo, you used to be so cool. But what they mean by cool is that you were complacent. Mm -hmm. You were pleasant. It's really interesting you say that. Like, you used to be and, so cool. You used to be. I was talking with somebody the other day about something in comedy, right? And I said, eh, I was criticizing. I was looking at someone's uh, set and saying, I love this part, but I didn't like these parts. I thought that was like, you know, kind of corny to just go to misogyny so quickly. You know what I mean? And they were yeah. like, wow, you're a comedian. I thought that with you, you would be, you know, cooler or that, that. And I said, well, I got to be honest with you. It was one of the clearest moments I've had in the past month. I said, I got to be honest with you. There's a lot of female comedians. They don't really care to please the boys anymore. You're not the barometer Mm. of cool. And we're not going to praise your mediocrity anymore. Like, I'm sorry. But the fact is, we've spent a lot of times, the amount of time I spent now, um, whether it's watching content or sometimes being at a live show, and you will see somebody... They're not saying anything. Anything. You're not saying anything. You're not saying anything. You sound like every other dude I've seen (laughs) on stage before. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. Did you hear? I've heard five other dudes say the same thing. So most people who are not pulling themselves out of their programming Mm. are just going to consistently support and not want to see anything different, which inhibits the growth of the artist because you become an audience people pleaser now because yeah. now you have your core fans and that's all you have to worry about. So it's like, as much as you love it, you'll see music artists do this all the time when they um, have been in the business 20 plus years and they have their core audience and their legendary status already. You'll start to notice that in their work, there is very little growth or change. Yes. Because they're not trying to find new fans. They're not trying to build something new. When you look at the careers of legendary comics, and I'm a huge comedy nerd, there was always growth and change with them because at some point they became frustrated with how they were looking at society. Pryor went through it. Carlin went through it. Bill Hicks went through it. 
All of them went through it. Sadly, I only have male examples, but I can also give Joan Rivers as an example of well, one of the first. Men have to, right? They have to go through the transition where women were always like kind of looking and asking for to be seen, right? Mm. Yes. We were asking permission to be seen in a world where they already had dominance and they already were given yeah. permission. They got a chance to grow in front of the camera. We didn't even have a chance to be on camera for the longest time if we weren't wearing, you know, if we weren't dancers or whatever. And I still get that sometimes if I'm on a show with all men, they'll be like, well, are you like a waitress here or something? Like, it's literally like they can't fathom. They're like, why would a female be on this show? Not in 2023. (laughs) Now, I do want to go to and then we're going to go back to sex because I want to jump into this conversation sooner because the sex is so much fun. <laughs> it is. Um, but this is a tr- is very important because this is Black Maternal Week. I didn't even know we had one um, until I was watching New York One in New York. Now, Dr. Candace, are you, where are you residing? I'm in Kentucky, in Louisville, hey, Kentucky. Hey. Oh, okay. oh, Louisville. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Louisville, Kentucky. Are you okay in Kentucky, by the way? You know, sometimes I'm not. Yeah. Because I always you. worry sometimes about... Sometimes I'm not. It's like, I that's fair about. to say. Fair to yeah. say. I always worry about my people in Kentucky. It's, it can be right. Mm. Mm. Yes. But I do want to talk to you about the fact that you wrote us, you know, because you were listening to Vaughn DiCarlo's story you know, with childbirth and when that doctor came in, mm. she had a she had a great childbirth until the next morning this doctor reached inside of her and it was like with no permission whatsoever. Can you take us back to what it was like for you to hear that and why you reached out to us? So and your story. Yeah, absolutely. So in you know how if you have a birth a birth story that is unpleasant or a miscarriage story that's unpleasant, like something about hearing another person's story hits you in the heart space. And it's like, oh, so in 2021, that experience happened for me where I had an ectopic pregnancy. And that's basically where the egg implants outside of your uterus. It was on my fallopian tube and then it burst. And so if you ever go through an experience like that, it's a near fatal experience because you're hemorrhaging, you're losing so much blood. And the way the emergency medical service providers acted in my home. My husband ended up having to carry me out of the house and put me on the gurney because they wouldn't touch me. And we're in a place like Kentucky where we understand that racism and gendered racism in particular involved, but there's also quite a drug crisis going on. And so I imagine they might've thought I was on drugs the way I was coming in and out. And the intersection of racism, sexism, and that stigma around drug use Probably was like, oh, I want to keep hands off. They were trying to ask me questions. I was coming, I was in and out of consciousness. And so my husband was like, if y'all don't take her, I'm going to take her. And he ended up running downstairs. You know, he was like, I'm just going to put her in the car if you're not going to take her. And they were like, no, put her in the gurney. Once I got to the hospital, I had really good care when the doctor was able to assess. I didn't know I was pregnant. The doctor was able to assess that I was pregnant and they were going to have to do emergency surgery. But that experience up front, really was heartbreaking one because I didn't know what I was going through. And for so many women, even when they do know they're pregnant or they do know that they're in a crisis situation with their health, people Mm. don't believe them or they mishandle their bodies or they mistreat them. They disrespect Mm. them with their words, especially Mm. for women of color. So Mm. when I think about how women of the global majority are at higher risk of dying during childbirth, 
And when I think about the crisis that has been exacerbated by these abortion laws, in a place like Kentucky, they wouldn't have even given me the medicine to not have the ectopic pregnancy because mm-hmm. they would have been like, oh, you're just trying to have an abortion as opposed to you're trying to save your life. So those pieces were what led me to reach out when I heard that because I was like, you know, we gotta, we have to have more platforms where yeah. we can tell those stories. Yeah. And what um, would you say from that, would you, you know, if you were to give advice to any woman who's to go through a similar experience, like what would be the steps to sort of like advocate for themselves. Cause I know you had to really fight for mm-hmm. yourself. I mean, one having your husband this, there was helpful. Yeah. The steps aren't even for us. Honestly, yeah. the, the healthcare system needs the steps. Yeah. <laughs> they need to be paying attention and listening. If Serena can't say something's wrong with my body and I need you to pay attention, then even if me as me having to broker my academic privilege to survive a system shouldn't be the case. Mm-hmm. You know, us having to broker our intellectual or financial privilege shouldn't be the case. It really should be that we have mental health providers, have physical health providers who respect everybody's decision and respect their authority on their own body. Absolutely. Yes. What so whatever you, training they need for that. What do you now? We have some articles here about midwives and how midwives were sort of pushed out mm-hmm. of the way mm-hmm. so that. Because these were jobs for women. So if you And for to, women of color in particular. Yeah. And uh, Abdullah's, right? Yeah. So would you suggest that to women or would you say whatever's best for you? You know, because I'm starting to feel like everything for black women or black people in general now is like we have to do it ourselves. Like mm. schooling. Everyone's talking about homeschooling your children now. Mm-hmm. So now pregnancy, I, it's it's like when you see these numbers, when you see the rates of death, maternal yeah. death in America, it's unbelievable. But then when you, they compare it to other places like Australia, well, Australia is mostly white, so they don't have the racial disparity mm-hmm. that America has. So this is racism in America yeah. when it comes to maternal death. I just know that from my own experience from having two kids and then I had positive and negative experiences with both of their births and, you know, the pregnancy is that there's a, the common denominator of negativity is that people examining you, talking to you, they look at black women negatively. They think you're lying. They think you're exaggerating. Then when you don't let them drop it, then you're aggressive. You're you're rude. You don't, you're stubborn. You won't just Mm -hmm. listen or that can't be true. And it's weird because you're just walking in there to be treated. You're just going to a doctor's office for a visit, or you're just going to the hospital to be induced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny because people always talk about black women, you know, Latinas, women of color having an attitude. You have an attitude too. Mm-hmm. You would have an attitude You would too. have an attitude too if nobody Thank was you. listening to you at one of the most vulnerable yes. points of your life. You too would get frustrated if you were in that situation, but nobody looks yes. at it like that. Mm-hmm. And everyone likes to believe that women of color, specifically black women, have a higher threshold for pain. Yeah. And they go with that kind yeah. of prejudice. Yeah, mm-hmm. they do. And it's really scary. It's really, really scary. My, uh, mm-hmm. my, this is not maternal, but just real quick offshoot. My daughter has a very good friend. She has sickle cell anemia. And, uh, you know, kids oh, are doing yeah. way better with sickle cell anemia now. 
But every time she's in pain, the hospital will think she's drug seeking. You know what I mean? So it's just like when it comes to black women and even Latina women and Asian women, when it comes to like childbirth, I just want you to have all your ducks in a row and have people that support you. Mm-hmm. And yes, a doula. If you can get a doula, get a doula. Yeah. And a lot of times they have midwife Marie and doula services at scholarship or affordable rates because we recognize that economically we don't all have the same experience either. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, they might cost an extra few thousand dollars for you to have the support that you need. And so a lot of the organizations now are creating resources where you can get one. But to your point, I when so I had a really great pregnancy experience with my son and I had a black woman OBGYN. And so she was like, I'm gonna hook you up, girl. Like I got you. And I was, I appreciate you, Wendy girl. And so that was fine. But then once I delivered in the hospital, do you know that you know, they take the baby out to do like the feed and the um, eye testing and ear and all that? The, yeah. Yes. They brought the wrong baby back. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. That was my fear. That was my I fear. Said, I know it's been 10 hot minutes since I had the baby, but I know I said my baby. <laughs> you know, I was like, no. I was like, this is not. No, Wait a minute. this is how not. Could, how, how? They rolled him back in. How far? And it was where, did they go to, where did they go? And then there probably bring... were only two black moms in there because I'm in Kentucky. Oh, and they Lord just Jesus. rolled somebody else's baby. I said, take that baby back to this mom right now. That is not. You were like, I know son. I'm drugs, but I'm not totally high. Uh, right. Like, you just know, yeah. like, that's not my baby. <laughs> they did a similar thing to my sister with breast milk. They fed my niece with someone else's oh. breast milk. I'll never forget that. I was. I like, know she was so hot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was like, how does that even happen? How do you mix up breast milk? Like it's negligence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no other word for it. Everybody wants to be nice about it, but it's negligence. Now, and hospitals they... hate hearing that word. Oh, they hate, and they built up a pretty good wall around the doctors to prevent you from complaining. Are you kidding me? I had a horrible experience. I remember, yes. Tell us with again. giving birth, and literally, like, I had to get trauma therapy mm. after. Like, it was awful. Um, I was not listened to from the second I walked in. I said I had a birth plan, and this doctor told me we'll make a plan for you. That was the first word out of his time. mouth. And the nurses, mm-hmm. the nurses themselves, were like. Good luck with this guy. Like, basically, everybody was just like, good Uh, luck with this guy. And then in the room, every time I would scream, he would yell at me to stop screaming. Every time I showed any kind of, like, I was petrified of giving birth. It was one of my biggest fears. I loved being pregnant, but I was petrified of giving birth. And then you have this doctor who is And this doctor is yelling at me. My poor husband, who is a ball of anxious nerves, who had to drive two hours because he was working in Connecticut when he found out I was going into labor, got there in a in a panic is dealing with me and this doctor has no idea what to do. He's like, I kind of want to strangle this doctor, but my son is still being yeah. born, so I don't know what to do yeah. right now. And the doctor is yelling at me like, stop screaming, stop screaming. It does feel like sexual assault. I've heard people describe it like that. It really feels yeah. like sexual assault. And then at one point I was yelling at the doctor. I said, you're hurting me. Please stop what you're doing. You're hurting me. And he just... Paid no mind to what I was saying, did not stop. So my son gets born. I'm, you know, I'm holding my son in my arms and I'm just completely 
gone. I'm I'm a mm. mess. I, I am physically exhausted. I am emotionally exhausted. I am still dealing with the fear and the anxiety of what I've just mm. been through. I, I'm holding my son, you know, it's a very confusing emotional moment because I'm very happy to be holding my son, but at the same time, all of this chaos and the doctor comes back in the room and I won't look at him. Like, I literally can't look at him. Like, I am so enraged that I'm like, if I wasn't, if, if I physically was at my best right now, I would leap out of this bed and attack you without a second thought for what just happened. And he says, he starts going, why isn't she looking at me? Why won't she look at me? How come she won't look at me? He oh, starts he's saying narcissistic. That. Yeah. Oh my and gosh. so thank God for the nurse that was in there. She was like, you know what? She doesn't have to look at you. So if you don't like it, you can get the fuck out of here. Right. Oh, wow. wow. The nurse said that. And I was like, thank God, because I started weeping. As soon as she started talking to him, I started weeping because mm-hmm. I was like, so I was angry in so many ways. And what I don't think people always assume female tears are tears of sadness. I was like, no, these right. are rage tears yeah. because mm-hmm. I I am so upset at everything that I couldn't prevent. Fast forward, this is still the same day, mind you. My son was born a couple of hours. I'm in the bed, still kind of recovering. The doctor comes in. He found my room. And because myself and my husband and two nurses had lodged a complaint about the doctor mm-hmm. with the hospital. Wow, the nurses had your back. Because they don't want to deal with him either. Yeah, like... He makes their job harder. And and there was no... There was no denying what had happened Mm. in that room was Mm. not right, was not professional. There was literally no denying. Anybody that was in that room knew that. And so this was his apology. I swear to you, I became so enraged. Like, uh, he was like, I'm sorry I wasn't gentle enough with you. Or soft enough. He said, I'm sorry I wasn't soft enough with you. No, you didn't act like Mm -mm. a humane human being. So the problem is me. The problem is me. You weren't soft enough with me. I'm too emotional of an individual. I'm too emotional of a being. The problem is me. Not that you acted unprofessionally. Not that you didn't listen. He should be like... You you know that the one doctor who works in OBGYN in New York and they say he assaulted all these women and then they're like, please come Mm -hmm. forward. He's this this sounds like a similar story Mm -hmm. with this doctor. When when we got the letter back from the hospital about the complaint we launched, the gist of the letter was, well, you have a healthy baby. So. No, let me tell you something. There is there is no doubt in my mind that my son has certain anxieties because he was still connected to me with his umbilical Mm -hmm. cord during this entire process, Mm -hmm. during this terrible birth. It's like, I I knew this was something that was going to happen. I was like, this poor child felt every bit of his mother's anxiety and fear in those Mm -hmm. moments. And that will stay with him Mm. because that's an inexplicable crack in your foundation that you can't go back and change. I can't experience that birth again and give him a more pleasant coming into this world. So there was part of me that was just enraged at the fact that I was robbed of that, that the birth should have been a special moment, not something that I look back at and I can't remember fondly. Now, Mm -hmm. Dr. Candace, you hear this and you, you talk about dealing with trauma afterwards. How would you recommend someone to deal with the trauma of, of such a, 
a horrible experience. I think one of the first steps that you took that I recommend for most people is to document it and to advocate for yourself, even when you're especially like viscerally harmed Mm -hmm. by the situation. Like when you document and you advocate for yourself, you're establishing a pattern of this person's misconduct and it helps you take your power back because that's what they're trying to do from, you know, like to extract your power from you or make you feel Mm -hmm. dehumanized. And then the the type of therapy that I usually work with people on is being able to tell their story, being able to communicate what it meant to them, not just what it was, but what it meant to them. So when you can have give voice to the emotions, like rage is an, an a necessary emotion in that, like sadness, fear, overwhelm, like having people expand their language around the emotions, it helps them understand and kind of process that emotion that gets lodged in the body. And a lot of movement work accompanies that because we know it's not just like your hurt feelings, it's your body's response mm-hmm. to that that's going to stick with you. So you might not breathe the same when you walk into hospitals anymore. Oh, you yes. know, when you have to see the OBGYN a few weeks after and a few weeks after, you can't you're you're anxious, your your skin is tight, and then your body's still healing from a birth. All of those things are what we process. So how you breathe, how you walk, how you stretch your body, what words you use to talk about yourself to affirm that you ain't crazy, that you had a crisis you know, to validate the experience, those are some of the ways that I do that. And if you don't have a therapist, I ask people to, you know, do it through journaling or talking with a trusted companion or peer, someone who you know will listen without judgment, won't try to make, play devil's advocate because nobody needs that. Like The that. devil doesn't need an advocate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? The devil don't need no friends? Like <laughs> The devil can speak for he, him, they, exactly. themselves. <laughs> I have right. no idea. Like, let the devil speak for themselves now mm-hmm. stace has a question backstage she says and what about gina's son are there interventions that can help with that little guy recover from his traumatic birth experience um i mean i don't i i can tell you how i work with him but i would love to hear from the doctor like oh, i yeah. definitely work a lot with him when he is feeling anxious when he displays anxiety i don't dismiss it i don't act like it shouldn't be taken seriously i I stop myself. I take the pause that he needs as well to let him feel like he is safe and that it's okay to feel those feelings. And that even if he's, cause he has moments where like I may approach him and he may back up because he is not ready to physically be approached. And I have to be okay with that as a mom. I can't be like, I want to hug you and make you feel better because that may not be what he needs in that moment. I need to let him decide what he needs in that moment. So in those moments, as hard as it is as a mom, because you do want to scoop him up and wish you could hug and kiss the pain away, that doesn't teach him how to process his anxiety in the long run. He needs to be taught that these feelings are not only okay, but that they're normal and that he can work through them to a certain extent before he's ready for physical contact in any way. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I will tell him, I said, mommy can tell that you need a minute. Mommy's going to give you a minute, but I am right here. When you are ready, you can come over to mommy and you can sit on my lap and that's fine. And there are some times where he runs over to me right away once he's given the okay. And there are times when he needs a minute, where he needs a minute to feel safe. And I have to understand also optically, my son is two and a half. He's tiny. I am a giant to him. Mm -hmm. 
So I also have, I get down on his level. I don't stay standing up. I get down on his level so he doesn't feel as intimidated by size. Yeah. And those are just little things that I think I've picked up through going to therapy myself and little things that I needed even when I'm working with other people. If somebody I notice is having a panic attack, I don't stand over them and try to calm them down. Mm-hmm. I sit down with them. I'll take their hands. I'll talk to them. I'll help them feel more present so that they can pull themselves out of it. But I work with the energy I'm given and I do my best to do that with my son. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Gina, because all of those techniques are about attachment-based parenting, like you respecting your kids' autonomy and their ability to say, yes, I do or do not want touch is so core. The only thing I would add to that is making sure that the people who are going to be in contact with him, so if he's in daycare or if it's other family members, that would be, those are the additional pieces, which you might already do to let them know, this is the experience that my son seems to be communicating. Sometimes he feels anxious and it looks like this. Do not judge him. Do not shame him. Do not blame him. Give him the space he needs. Usually it takes five to 10 minutes or sometimes it's faster. You know, just giving them the same guidance because if y'all are raised like me, most of us weren't raised in yeah. emotion-affirming community or family experiences. It was like, don't cry unless you want something to cry about, or emotions are not welcome here because you need to be yes. strong. Yes. And so you're reteaching the people that are in his little community what it means to be uh, accepting of emotion, tolerant of emotion, affirming of the full spectrum of his humanity. Because many people are anxious and have trauma. But we don't respect their full humanity, and so we ask them to pretend like it doesn't exist. Well, yeah, I think for a lot of us, I know I can speak for myself. One, most of us are still healing our own wounds. Mm -hmm. And two, most of us are learning to respect our own mental health in ways that we were not. Right. uh, We were not afforded when we were children. And it can be difficult sometimes for me to have conversations with my parents and be like, Please don't use that kind of terminology. Please Mm -hmm. don't use those words. Please don't say don't cry. Please don't ask him not to cry. If he's crying, it's for a reason. Understand why he's crying instead of trying to dismiss it away. Because the way that we look at anxiety often, um, if we're talking in terms of like old school parenting, if we're talking about how most of us grew up, anxiety would look like a weakness. Anxiety Mm -hmm. would look like something that could easily be intimidated out of you, beaten out of you. Mm. or just made you to mask so that you seem like you're not an anxious person. Meanwhile, you're freaking out inside. And our ability to repress that became so strong generationally. Like we just learned to push down our emotions. It's why people from different generations struggle with the changes going on in society now where people are being called out on things because we've Mm -hmm. pushed down all the stuff that we used to feel So we can't even get in touch with an understanding Mm -hmm. of why things need to change. Yeah, and I do think that generationally, you hit on something really interesting. I think there is a level of jealousy. Yes, yes. That boomers and exes can have and older millennials with, you know, Zoomers and younger millennials. Because like I was telling my daughter the other day, I was saying, you guys are so lucky to have such body positivity. We never would have been given a rock star like Lizzo as a teenager. We never would have mm-hmm. been given that. And my daughter was like, there was no bo- body positivity. I was like, are you kidding? Like, no, 
they would just say you are positively no. the biggest bitch or like you are pro- like it would just yes, it'd yes. be a joke turned on you it wouldn't be mm-hmm. it, yes. you know I, so i'm like you know you y'all need to be thankful like i mean you don't get it but i'm thankful like looking at someone like her and like little Nas yeah. X, i'm thankful yeah. for what the younger generations the path that has been paved for them i like it yes and we have to be able to learn from them because they're trying to teach us something yes. about gender. They're trying to teach us yes. something about sexuality. They're trying to teach us something yes. about mental health that they need for themselves, but that we also need permission from. It's like yes. we could we could just learn, but some of us, to your point, are so envious uh, of the all that they're getting that we didn't get. And we gotta release that envy. Otherwise we'll stay well, stuck. Well, that envy, I think, comes from tapping into those emotions we've repressed. And we don't know the only acceptable emotions to show are anger or jealousy or frustration in any way. Those are the acceptable ones, because I think where that envy actually comes from is a deep-seated sadness where we could not live a lot of our truth. Yeah, and I think so much of... I had a really uh, visceral experience with envy a few summers ago, you know, when you go on your phone, you look at like something your peer is doing. And I, I remember being like, I felt like actually physically ill, <laughs> like physically ill with envy. And I had to do, you know, the tears, I was angry, but I really started to examine the envy. Like what is making me so upset? And it was about, they have something that I want. It's not about them. It's about me. Yeah. And so it really was wonderful because it helped me clarify the path and the direction I need to go in. Because it makes you ask the questions, why do I not allow myself to want yes. this mm. or to achieve yes. this? What is it about the way that I view yes. myself where I think that I am unworthy of something I clearly yes. want? Yes. Mm. You, have to, you have to inspect and look at the narrative that you have written for yourself or that you have accepted for yourself. And that's real work that you have to do. Yeah. This because is a once, perfect, oh. yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Marina. No, no, go ahead. I talked too well, much. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it was just about triggers. And what one thing I've noticed about myself is when I'm getting triggered in a conversation, um, now what I will do is, even if you see it in my face, you will see the anger and the rage in my face. But I am sitting there quiet because I am, processing in the moment what is why is this triggering me this is not about the person in front of me this is not about what they're saying why is this oh i just bit my tongue oh Oh, i hate that oh Uh, and that's forever the universe was like stop talking about your triggers um it's something i do now because i'm like if i let myself fall into anger too quickly i will lose whatever i'm supposed to learn in this moment If I just go into that. This is a great place to go into this conversation of, again, sexual liberation, feminism. And, you know, Dr. Candice, you talk about mindfulness. I saw a post. Can you help me understand mindfulness with black women and sexuality? Mm, Absolutely. So the mindfulness movement has definitely been co-opted. Let's just name that, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's just been a lot of like colonization of mindfulness. Let's just let's name that. But the benefits of it are real. And that's why I want it for us again. I want us to return to this in our 
Afro-Latino tradition has it, African tradition has it, like well before it got over here Mm -hmm. to America, right? Where people ask you to be still for a moment. Yes. And notice yourself. Then notice what's around you. So we get really good at noticing everything around us for survival. But then that takes away our, what we call interoception or our ability to notice ourselves. So if you are taking the moment, like you just described, Gina, to notice, like, I feel angry. What does anger feel like in your body? Like, I'm 10 degrees hotter. You know, like, my breathing is constricted. Um, My shoulders are up here. Like, if you, that's mindfulness. Noticing these things without judgment. And so sometimes we get noticing. So we get to that skill of noticing, like, ah, my face is screwed because I'm not happy. But now we're judging it. Like, and people are going to think this about me and I'm a bad person because I'm disappointed in something. It's like, no, just notice it. Okay. My face is scrunched up. I feel sad. I feel unhappy. And that just is. And it has Mm -hmm. its place for your sexual well-being as well because some of us get so dissociated from our bodies based on all these traumas or these histories of being silenced and marginalized that we're just attending to everything external. And that means that you don't notice when you're aroused. You don't notice that you need to pause so that you can become as lubricated as you want to be before whatever sexual event you're choosing. You don't notice that something is pleasurable or something is painful. You kind of just push through, try to get it over with. Mm -hmm. And so when you start to be mindful in your sexual encounters with yourself or with others, I always say start with yourself because that's the best playground for you to learn all these skills. But when you become mindful, then you can better communicate with your partners what you like, what's good to you. And what makes you feel safe, I think, Mm -hmm. is really Mm -hmm. important in those moments that we don't... What's good for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Christina Aguilera, she's opening up Well, no, she's been opening up about stuff, but um, she actually said she felt bad for her grandma. She had this perception about sexuality and she clearly didn't reach her pleasure points. Maybe she would have been a little happier sometimes had she done that. I can see my grandma going, coming from the grave going, bitch, what'd you say about me? (laughs) (laughs) I I can't even talk. Keep my name out your mouth. mouth. I know when I read that line, I was like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> My grandma would definitely come out and slap the hell out of me. Yeah. So. But I do find this difference, like we were talking about generationally, like older women of a certain generation, we did not talk about sexuality. Like, and we do miss out. And I look at, you know, I've, I had um, Christina Hutchinson on the podcast from, you know, she does the podcast, The Guys We Fucked. And I had her on and it's just, I'm so envious of her freedom of talking about sexuality. I was on her podcast and I blush. Like I have, my therapist was like, what is that? And I was like, let's not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> let's not really, I don't want to talk about that right now. Which is the whole point of therapy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's something I don't want to talk. But I, you know, like I have former experiences of, of older, my grandfather used to always shame me about my development. Mm. So for me, even being sexual, I, I could still hear his voice. How do you, how do you evolve? How do you, without, you know, like obviously going to therapy, what are, what are some ways to like, just, you know, be like a Gen Z with this? (laughs) How do you Gen Z it up? Let me, but y'all let me name that. We have this archetype of our maternal figures, but there were blues women 
who were like talking about sex and exploring mm-hmm. sexuality with women and trans folk and other people. Like, so in our grandparents' era, there were anachronistic women who were like, we're going to get ours. We're going to do our thing, you know, and That's we got to honor them because they were the hot girls of that day. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so yes, I consider myself a hot girl scientist of the 1999 to the 2000 cash money taking over <laughs> yes, yes. variety. And my most of my mentees are like Meg the Stallion, hot girl scientist. Hey, you know, like that, that like era. That. <laughs> but we both do a hot girl shit. So it's like every generation has women who perform traditional femininities and every generation has women who are not. And if you remember that there are always women or people, you know, people of all genders who are sexually expansive and intentional in their sexualities, then it gives you permission to not have to feel like you're this, they're, you're missing the mark on the standards. Like I have one grandmother who I would consider, she wouldn't call herself high girl, but I would call herself, you know, I would call her that in her day, you know? And I have one grandmother that was more traditionally feminine and like, this is how the house should be and all of these things. So they've kind of modeled both sides of that for me. And then I got to be selective about what type of sexuality fit for me. And you get to do that now at any age. So I think that's what the younger generation is showing us. Like it's fluid for a reason. It's flexible for a reason. It doesn't mean that you have to try everything that's available. If it doesn't please you, don't try it. But if it's something you're curious about, but you just feel shame around it, give yourself permission to try it once. And if you don't like it, you don't like it. You can put it on your no list. Mm -hmm. But if it's been on your maybe list for a long time, willingness to explore that is the way because it's not going to be easy to do it. You're going to feel that that shame that people have imposed on you. Mm -hmm. But I always attribute the shame to the systems where they came from. So the shame is based on patriarchy and sexism and classism and racism. That's that's the system. What do I really want for myself? What do I really desire? If I had all of the freedom and permission in the world, what's on my yes list? Mm -hmm. And then give yourself some room to try those things with people who you can try them with respectfully. I love this. I love this conversation because we're women of color talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like we, you know, the sexual revolution left us out. Like mm-hmm. we were always either expected to be, you know, like um, too sexy mm-hmm. or whatever. The expectation mm-hmm. of that. So when we talk about it, there, there's never a room for us to talk about it because, you know, they're like, oh, you you should already know you're sex, you're sexual from the moment you come yeah. out the womb. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I was funny because when you, I was reading one of the articles uh, about sexual revolution. And I just remember being very young, four and five years old, and hearing elders talk about those fast girls. She's fast, mm. you know, and I remember, and, and as I got older, I started thinking like, maybe she was fast because somebody was chasing her. Like, like fat. Mm. why should a child have mm-hmm. to be fat? Oh, like, yeah. that's weird. Like, she was being chased, yeah. you know? And so, yes. you know, at the sexual revolution, it's funny because I got to a certain age where I started thinking like, was a sexual revolution ever even for us? Was it just a way for men to get more access to ass? Because it didn't seem to be mm. anything about our health or what we really wanted, you know? So when I see people talk about the sexual revolution, yeah. I'm like, well, what part? Just heterosexual sex? Mm-hmm. Just getting access to younger women? Is it about reproductive health? Is it about our choices? So, Yeah. That's why I always bring it back to my definition of sexual liberation, because you're right. 
so many people co-opted it and thought, oh, well, it's just about men and performing for men. And it's not because queer women of color in particular defined and constructed sexual liberation. And then everybody else messed it up with their own stuff. But Audre Lorde was talking about the erotic way back. You know, Alice Walker was showing us what sexualities could be in the color purple, like in, in the early 80s, like all of these even Maya Angelou talked about her days of being a hoe, you know, like and what that what that meant for her to become like a poet, a poet laureate after like there. It was always there was always room for us, but we were always sanctioned harder for yes. participating mm-hmm. and labeled within and outside of community as fast. I'm, I've always been a fast girl. Like, right. I'm going to talk about this in another in another um, project that I have going on. But. Why do black women's sexual reputation management, why is it, why does it exist? Like, why do we use it? And I think it upholds rape culture and it upholds sexual shame culture to call a black girl fast Mm -hmm. for just having a body. Just having a body. Uh, My grandmother, not to, not to have her come into this podcast (laughs) and slap all of us, because she'll slap all of us. (laughs) 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 But, but she, Grandma Moot used to always call, don't be Jezebel. She used to call us Jezebel. Yes. Because there's a stigma when you don't have any shame surrounding sexuality. (laughs) Because the generation you're talking about, their definitions from sexuality came from where? The church and the government. So Mm -hmm. those were how they learned about sexuality. Why? Because nobody wanted sexuality taught in schools. Nobody wanted. And then they wondered why in inner city schools there was teenage pregnancy when nobody was explaining sex to these kids. And they come from cultures that the younger you are when you get pregnant, the better off you are. Like that was so preached in the Latino culture for so long that it was like, if you were a certain age and you weren't married with kids, what is wrong with you? What mm-hmm. is wrong with you? It's you. And it was literally so audacious because it would literally be like, oh my God, you're 25 years old. Like, have you found a husband yet? My brain just developed, bro. Just now prefrontal cortex came Just on now, bro. <laughs> just now. Give me a second. <laughs> I am just starting to make good adult decisions, God yeah. willing. Gina, you had a good brain at 20. I could see it. <laughs> Girl, I wish you could have met 20-year-old me that. She was making some bad think about choices. Like 20-year-olds. Remember, you were tw- 20-year-olds are wild. They are wild. A 20-year-old could be doing anything, yeah. anywhere, anywhere on the planet. Like, you don't know what it's... A 20-year-old could be doing anything. Anything. Mm-hmm. And they make crazy decisions. I know. I had all the fun in my Oh, 20s. I had a ball. I had a ball. But I look back on my 20 and I'm like, ooh, Luna, just, ooh, just, ooh. My daughter is 16 now, so I'm looking at her. I would not do it again. I, mean, I survived I it. it. Yes. <laughs> There's this great article that came out in the New York Times that's trending about, ooh. oh, man, my computer just decided to go, nope, you can't read that article. Um, Hilarious. It was like, nope. Uh, that was your grandma. Yeah, I know. Grandma Moo was like, bitch, I got you. Uh, (laughs) My husband no longer wants sex. Do I divorce him? Yes. The reader explains how her and her husband have been together for 30 years and how strong their relationship is in all areas apart from sex. She had an affair that she managed to keep from him and contemplates the ethics of leaving him for someone else when he threatens suicide and they Mm. have no children. The ethicist responds by writing that there is no one model for a healthy relationship, though it traditionally means that it involves sexual attraction. 
and physical intimacy that manifests in a loving relationship. However, as she notes, the prospect of leaving him for someone else, her desire for this other person is more than sexual. Mm -hmm. So the ethicist continues by saying that her and her husband never lost the spark. They just never had it. I'd be like, you don't know us. The relationship does not meet her needs and there are no mutual accommodations for sex. Now, how important is sex in a married relationship? Like I could argue like, the way my grandmother would probably look at this conversation would be like, get over yourself. Mm-hmm. It happens. Just moving a room upstairs. Right. Because the separate rooms was really a really mm-hmm. thing. Like, yeah. It really was. It really was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that everybody gets to decide for themselves how important sex is in their relationship. And the issue usually comes up when there's a desire discrepancy. So someone wants sex less than someone else in the relationship. And it is one of the toughest things that couples have to negotiate. But they also have to understand it's normal. Like it's normal to be able to feel really high desire for one season in life and no desire to low desire in another season in life. Nothing's wrong with anybody, not a man, a woman, or a trans or gender expansive person for having desire that ebbs and flows. Like we're not hungry all the time every day. So why would we be desirous all the time every day? But what it sounds like to me is there's manipulation in the relationship. If anyone ever says that they're willing to complete suicide because you leave them, that's yeah. a manipulation tactic. And that's actually emotional abuse. Mm-hmm. And so on that ground alone, it's probably not been a healthy relationship for a long time, sex notwithstanding. And I would say make the decision to leave based on your well-being as opposed to whether or not your husband wants to have sex. Mm-hmm. Is it okay to go and get sex somewhere else? I think you can consent to that. I think y'all can talk about that together. Yeah. (laughs) If there's an open relationship situation, like I know a couple of people that changing over to an open relationship actually saved their relationship Mm -hmm. because there were needs that sometimes I think it's a little unfair to expect our partner to meet every single one of our needs. It's holistically unfair. Yeah. And I think that's why we have emotional relationships outside of our marriages. We have friends, we have people that we want to be around that like, oh, I can talk to this person in a different way. Um, Mm -hmm. We put a lot of expectations on our partner. And I think what I noticed with open relationships and my friends that were polyamorous is that they give themselves the space to be like, the energy I need is actually from this person today. Mm -hmm. And although I love you and I'm going to come home to you and I will see you later, I'm going to make my plans with this person. And I think if you can establish trust and understanding yes. and complete honesty and transparency in those situations, it's not as weird as people make it seem. Mm-hmm. That's an emotional affair, right? If you, especially if you sort of, yeah, but that's you, only if you're not yeah. talking about it with your partner, it, it right. would constitute an emotional affair. But I think if you're honest about it and you're like, I can't, I had to tell my husband when he first found out I was even going to therapy, he was like, well, I want to be the person you come to. And I said, you can't because if I broke my arm, I wouldn't look to you to make me a cast. Right. I need outside help with certain things. And it gave him more of an understanding of like, I can't put everything on you. Yes. It's not fair to, no, it's not fair to carry that for one person. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. Now, Holly, are you uh, getting it all the time? And you're no. <laughs> oh God! I just thought that what a, what an inappropriate no. question. You get it all the time in your uh, well, marriage, or what's you, going during on the here? Pandemic, that was a real challenge. Like them, everyone's being here all the time, and then I got smart, and you're I was just alone. like, 
I have a certain half and half. You can only find it at that one store. Can you guys both go walk? <laughs> so I would like to send them on walks for a specific half and half. That or right cookies there. Or they all, they're the only store that has those Viva oh, paper yeah. towels. You're going to have to go two yeah. neighborhoods over. You know what I mean? And then like make them go out. But yeah, it's, it's hard because, you know, I'm coming to an age like going through menopause too. And, you know, my body, like sometimes I'm like, I wish my body would want this more. I mm. like my brain is there, but my body's not there sometimes. And mm-hmm. so then I have to be like, mm-hmm. oh, wow. I realize, you know, especially raising a teenage girl, it's like, wow, you're, it's women, our bodies, it just never ends. Like we just keep, <laughs> we, we think we got this period thing down and then boom, and it switches to perimenopause. Mm-hmm. You think you got that down and then boom, it switches to menopause. So it's just kind of like, we're always yes. in some sort of transition. And I think the best mm-hmm. thing I do for myself is just to allow myself to vocalize and be like, okay, so this is different and this is changing. So let's look at that and let's talk to somebody about that. Yes. Yeah, because no one talks about the the transitions that the vagina yes, goes through throughout yes. your life. Like, yeah. The or if they do, they do it disrespectfully. Yeah. Yes. They say dumb stuff. That, yes. Mm-hmm. That, that's and now not you even don't true. feel like a place where you can have that conversation legitimately. Yeah. And you can feel your feelings about what's going on with your yeah. physical body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? The menopausal... Uh, Vagina, Doctor Candice. Well, let me let me highly recommend the Black Girl's Guide to oh, Menopause. I'm writing that down right okay. now. Yes. So, right. Listen, she. Uh, her name is Omi. She talks about this on her social media. She's been some everywhere, but she breaks it down. Oh, I and love she's it. Just dope, right. So I'm putting putting that resource out there. But sure. So sometimes when your hormones levels change as they do through menopause, and your body stops ovulating then like I talked about in the beginning, you might feel a really heightened sense of sexuality. So it might sharply shoot up and then level back out or it might sharply decline and then level back out. And then in perimenopause, you do have those times where you're not able to be aroused in the same way. So even if you came into your sexual self with what I like to call spontaneous sexual desire, you might notice that even if you had spontaneous sexual desire at the earlier stages in your sexual life where you could just get turned on by anything, you might turn into someone who has responsive sexual desire where it takes a little bit more time, effort, intention, energy to turn you on. You got to move a little bit slower. And we're such in a high paced world right now that we don't respect the fact that you might be an oven that takes a little bit longer now, even if you weren't that way. And If we give ourselves and our partners time to digest that, then we can do more foreplay or more chore play or whatever you need that helps you, you know, helps you feel turned on. And then sometimes you need to just be able to say no. And if you don't feel like you can say no in your relationship, then all sex begins to feel obligatory. But if you know no is an answer that you and your partner both respect, Mm -hmm. then when you do have sex, it's going to be likely or likely to be high quality. How important is it for men to be a part of this conversation as women are talking? Very. Because men need to be able to say no, too. And a lot of times we don't respect that, especially for men of color, where they are presumed to have high sexual prowess and 
we talk about their genital size and all mm-hmm. of these like stereotypes about them. And some people buy into them because it's like, oh, that's the one nice thing somebody has to say about me. But if men aren't able to say no, then they end up having sexual experiences that are outside of their consent, too. They're like, I got to do it because I'm a man, as opposed to this is what I really wanted. And I wanted to share this experience. So they need to better have better sex ed around women's bodies or people who are not men's bodies. They need to have better sexual ed about their own bodies, their own desires and needs. I'm I'm an advocate for comprehensive sex ed for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that because I really feel like we need to examine this whole idea of obligatory sex because I see a lot of people, Mm. uh, single people and people in relationships talk about obligatory sex. Like, yeah, that's just something you have to do. And I'm kind of like, if sex is not consensual and enjoyable, Mm -hmm. then what is it for? Like, what are you having sex for if it's not something you want? Yes. There's so many reasons people have sex. Some people have sex to get their bills paid. Some people have sex because they think it's going to make their partner feel better. Some people have sex for revenge. Some people, (laughs) you know, there's so many reasons people choose to have sex. But to your point, is it in alignment with what you really want? Or are you just doing the thing you feel like you need to do to control someone or to appease someone? Yeah. Yeah. I love what Stace wrote because I sometimes my conversation is very hetero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Stace wrote, these recommendations feel spot on for women in relationships with women, too. Yes. At least for her. Yes. Yeah, because there's always, a thing called yeah. lesbian bed death, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it, a lot of people in the queer community talk about, like, if two women get together, then both of their sexual desires are going to die at the same time. And they're not. Right. Yes. And they're never going to want to have sex again. And then they. And that's not always the case. In fact, there are so many ways to have sex. And mm. if we're only thinking about sex in these really narrow ways, then sure, we might use a terminology like that. But if we're thinking about sex in expansive ways, all the ways it can be, and it doesn't have to be penetrative and it doesn't have to be like certain types of touch, you can be, I can be having sex with one of y'all through this because digital sex is a thing, right? So there's so many ways to enjoy your sexual I self. finally had sex. <laughs> <laughs> Marina, you did it. (laughs) It's been so long. (laughs) So I do want to ask you about this quote, but you wrote in your Instagram, for me, respect is overrated. Too often respect is external validation or the removal of interpersonal conflict. But the more money you have, the less people respect you. And the more power you have, the less people respect you fear you maybe. So for me, I'll take money. You wrote that. No, I I think that hits for me still. Like I I think that we idealize respect especially in communities of color because we don't get it. Right? Right, whole songs about it, everything. Put some respect on my name, like you know what I mean? Like but what do we really mean when we're talking about respect? Some people mean deference as opposed to actual respect. Some people mean fear as opposed to actual respect. And it really comes back to you want somebody else to validate that you're inherently worthy. And I just don't need that at this stage in my life. So, you know, the validation is you can offer that, you can be a mirror to that, but power means that I can create policy and practice for you have to do what I say anyway. So if I'm gonna choose one, power is gonna be the one. And if I I felt like it was money, power, and respect, respect has very, 
There are people who work for you right now who don't respect you, but they get paid. And so they're going to do what you ask them to do because they're they're getting paid. There are people who have tons of money and nobody respects them Mm -hmm. because they don't like the way they're using their money. They don't like the way they're using their power. So at the end of the day, I think respect is. I understand why people want it, but I think that our definitions of it make it such that it really doesn't do anything for you. I think we've bastardized the the meaning of it. Mm-hmm. I think that we've taken it we've taken out the beauty of the idea of respect by making it obligatory by saying you yes. will respect your elders. Why? Right. People love to act like with age comes wisdom, but that's not the case. I met some dumbass oh, old people. Yeah. That's a fact. So you can't say with age, with experience comes wisdom. And when we're talking about the world of respect, I think more importantly, we should be having conversations about self-respect, about self-love. The only person that I should be concerned with, who do I respect, is myself. Do I respect myself enough to pull pull myself out of a situation where I am being disrespected? It's not about, I don't owe you nothing, Mm -hmm. but if I respect myself enough and I love myself enough and I'm setting boundaries, which is a new word for me, ding, ding, ding. boundaries (laughs) that I'm learning to set will automatically pull those disrespectful people out of your life. Because when you start acting with more self-love, you stop taking a lot of shit. That's right. A lot of times you just... And then people look at you as disrespectful. Yes, and then a lot... When you have... When you start having more respect for yourself, a lot of times you just quietly opt out of these disrespectful situations. I don't need to be big. I don't need to be Mm-mm. loud. I don't need to get in your face. I see you. I have processed what just happened and I'm out. I don't yes. need this. Or I would say it's more vulnerable and sometimes more transparent to tell the person this was disrespectful and this was hurtful than to just leave. Because I am I tend to be a just back out of the situation person. So I have to really actively work toward communicating the reason I feel like I want to withdraw from you right now is this. I care enough about you to tell you that what you did was hurtful, harmful, disrespectful. Now you have a decision to make about whether you're going to keep that behavior up once I've named it. But if I just leave like I've done in the past, then you haven't had the opportunity to grow and our relationship hasn't had the opportunity to strengthen. Now, if it's a relationship I don't give a fuck about, then it's a wrap. But if it's one I care about, I'm trying right now at this stage in my life to actively say, this is what that felt like when this happened. And this is what I would like in our relationship. Is yeah. that an option? And you can Ooh, say yes or yeah. no. Some people are well, repeat just, offenders and they don't deserve any kind. And that's a real thing. You know what I mean? And they you know, don't. Them, like, you at, them playing dumb and asking you to explain what they did is a re-injuring of you. It's just another form of torturing you. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think if there's someone that you think you can maybe get something out of it, then yeah. I, but... Some people, they play dumb to, to manipulate you and to watch you twisting and, and then it's like, yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a, a friend of 30 years that we have, I've just left. I just, I Because you that. know at that point. <laughs> I mean, I, it's like, what are you going to do? We've been friends forever. But the, the moment was so disrespectful and shocking. Um that I didn't have words for it. I didn't know how to exactly go back in because I felt like this was work that I can't do for her. She needs to do for herself. Mm -hmm. And I will just gracefully take Mm -hmm. a step back 
And when it's ready to have that conversation, I will have the conversation. But I respect myself too much. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you do have to wait for the person to be like, hey, is there something going on with you? And then it's like, you know what? I'm I'm glad you asked because <laughs> I've been preparing for this moment. Like, hold on. I, have I love notes. that. I'm glad Please you have, have a seat. I have notes. I'll be handing out your copy. <laughs> Please grab a binder. Uh, we're Here's going to chapter four. Slide, These are the problem areas. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Candace, you're so amazing. Like, please yes. come back anytime oh, you want to. to promote anything. Um, but before we go, I do want to mention this one article that is important. D- Director Tanya Lewis Lee, that's Spike Lee's wife, she talks black maternal health in aftershock. So while you know this will come out after Black Maternal Health Week, it's still available. Um, she wrote a 2022 documentary film it's called Aftershock Chronicles the Death of Two Women Due to Childbirth Complications on Their Family's Journey to Seek Justice Through Legislation and Medical Accountability on March 24th and 25th, leading healthcare providers, public officials, and community advocates from around the U.S. attended the second annual Black Birth Symposium, which was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So is co-directed by Paula um, Iselt and Tanya Lewis-Lee, wife of, I said that before, Spike Lee. And Aftershock was screened during the Black Birth Symposium. Uh, in 2007, Lee became a spokesperson for the Infant Mortality Awareness Raising Campaign. A healthy baby begins with you out of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Service Office of Minority Health. Here, she had the opportunity to travel the United States and meet with all kinds of people and learn about the issues of interest, mortality, and ultimately women's health. Because when it comes down to infant health, it's really about women's health. Mm -hmm. You just got to figure out what your part is. So I think that is the important takeaway is you have to figure out what your part is because we all have a part in this. It's a community thing. It involves men. It involves children, but it involves all of us. So we can, these, these conversations are just so important and so necessary to have. So I, and I really thank you ladies for this conversation. Really, really thank you, Dr. Candace, for the work that you're doing. I really appreciate you. Holly, where can our listeners find oh. you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, Holly Harper 5. Facebook, it's just me, Holly Harper. Uh, I'm going to be at the stand tomorrow night. And uh, with friends like us, you are always going to get some really good conversation. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. Gina? Gina Brion, everyone. Um, (laughs) You can check me out on uh, Instagram at Gina Brion for more show dates. Check out my website, uh, GinaBrion.com, for tour dates. I am out in Vegas this coming weekend for my birthday weekend. I will be performing at Jimmy Kimmel's Comedy Club from April 6th to the 9th. So come out if you're in Vegas. Uh, the 7th is my birthday show. So, Al, come out for that. Happy, Happy birthday! birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, with friends like us, you have a safe space to feel your feelings. Oh, thank you, Tina. Thank you. I try so hard to create it. Thank you. Yes. TB says happy birthday too, by the way. Thank He's you. backstage. <laughs> and and Stace says happy birthday too, not to leave her out. And she says, may you slay in Vegas. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. 
and excellent shows as always, they're saying. So they love you. And Dr. Candace, Nicole, thank you so much. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Okay, where I want to be found, Twitter is not the place, but I'm on there. (laughs) (laughs) No, find me on Instagram and Facebook, but I really want to be found on YouTube at Dr. Candace Nicole on all of those platforms where you can find the Fuck the System podcast and the How to Love a Human podcast. And hit me up on my website, drcandisnicole.com. And with friends like us, you can always talk about good sex. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, ladies. Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com, and you can find all of those social platforms. But also recommend this episode to a friend. It's such a good episode. It's very educational. There's so many points in here with friends like us. You always find solutions mm-hmm. yes. to make things a better way. Check, Check us, us out. out.